bring us the word. If you'll open your Bibles to Ephesians 2, if you're using one of the Bibles in the seats, it's uh, 977. The gospel is one in which uh, we talk about a lot grace alone. Um, and as we read this passage, this is a picture of that gospel, of the idea of that um, the good news that uh, we as a church and Christians proclaim, and the one that Will is going to be proclaiming at Christian, or Hope Explored, right? It's not Faith Explored, it's Hope. Okay, Hope Explored. Um, we at our church have Faith Explored, so it's, it's all the same. But um, So let's look together at Ephesians 2, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. Here, here's Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that at the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand, so that we should walk in them. When I say the spark is gone, what do you think about? A lot of you probably think of relationships, right? Boyfriend, girlfriend, sort of that, that uh, well, I feel like the spark is gone. I don't feel that same warm and fuzzy feelings. And sometimes that leads into even a husband and wife and that sad tragedy where one spouse says to the other, I just, the spark is gone. I don't feel it anymore. Well, for, for my profession, for being a pastor, that conversation happens a lot with our relationship with God, where I have people come and they say, the spark is gone. Um, I feel distant from God. I no longer have that same joy that I have of going to church. Um, I no longer have this desire to pray. That spark is gone. The joy is gone. What do I do? Well, what happened? Because at one point, this person was in a relationship where they would say they fell in love with Jesus, that, that they knew how much Jesus cared for them and, and how much, even, even in spite of them hating themselves and hating their sin, that God loved them. And yet, for a lot of us, there's times in our life where we feel like God is inaccessible or remote or unreal. So how do we get that spark back? Well, if you go to relationship websites, they would say, uh, you are probably bored, so don't be bored anymore. Stop complaining. Start talking with each other more. Go, go do a fun activity that you normally don't do. Or do something outside of the relationship that will make you happy when you go back to that relationship. Basically, be better, try harder, do more. But the Christian walk is not about doing more. That spark, the love for God, is gone when, when we in our Christian walk start forgetting the gospel, forgetting God's grace. 
Because the start, middle, and end of our relationship with God is his grace. So in order to get that spark back, we actually need to go back to the very beginning of how we came to know Jesus as our Savior. To the point where we, we run back to God and say, I, I need this. I need you. And it's not because he has gone distant or grown, grown cold. It's because we have forgotten his gospel. We have forgotten his grace. We have forgotten his love for us. The gospel of grace that first captured our hearts, that will be the thing that is the spark, the thing that brings us back, that makes us once again want to shout, I love Jesus, and I want to be with his people, and I want to pray, and I want to read his word, and I want to go to him. So Paul actually does that right here, and he shows us three things. He shows us who we are, what God has done, and what do we become. So first, who we are. What does Paul say in the first three verses? He says we're dead. Paul is literally saying here that we are the spiritual dead. We are the walking dead. There is nothing good within us. There is nothing that is good within me. And, and there's nothing that I can say that I'm good or I'm smart or I was able to figure this out. There's, there's nothing this morning that I can point to within myself on my own and say, look how good I am. And there's an old Saturday Night Live skit uh, called Daily Affirmation with Stuart Smalley. And Stuart is this talk show host who try to, tries to encourage and give affirmation to his guests and his audience. But before every show, he looks in the mirror and he says, I'm going to do a great show today. and I'm going to help people today because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. And that's how sometimes we feel, is we feel like we need to pump ourselves up. We need to, we need to look in the mirror and, and, and maybe not even look in the mirror, but just go to our jobs, go to what we do and say, hey, I am pretty good. I am pretty smart. And doggone it, people like me. But Paul in the first three verses actually gives the opposite, right? He says, look back at the verses. He says, you are not good enough. You are not smart enough. And doggone it, God's wrath is against you. Because here's the thing, this is true for all of humanity. It is not something where, you know, we like to divide it and say, well, I think that there's a certain amount of humanity that's good and that, there, that there's bad people out there and maybe you think that there's not a lot of bad people, there's maybe a small percentage, or you think, no, there's a small percentage of good people. But what Paul is saying here is all of us, that we were all children of wrath, that we all lived in our sinful nature serving ourselves. Not a single one of us is good. And we're not good enough because we were in an active rebellion against God. And, and imagine this is that you're in a kingdom and there's two kings trying to gain power. Can you serve both kings? You might try, but ultimately you're going to have to choose one or the other to serve. And that's what we did when we were sinners, when we were not with God. We chose the kingdom of the air, it says, the kingdom, the things of this world over the kingdom of God. And maybe you didn't bow down and worship idols like they did in the Old Testament, but maybe not in an outward way, but an inward way. In your heart, you were looking to the things of this world. You were looking to a person. You were looking to a job. You were looking for something in this world that was going to be the thing that brings you significance or security or happiness or fulfillment. And you look to those things instead of God. We're not good enough. And not only that, but we're not smart enough because look at the language here that it says. It says that we at one time were gratifying. We were living the passions of the flesh. And, and this is what Paul is getting at is, is a lust. It's a perversion of the mind. It is, our mind was so dark that it was no way possible to see what was good. 
And the imagery that we can give here is one of like an animal craving its next meal. It's so hungry, it's starving, it's, it's, there's nothing that it is thinking about other than I just want the next bone, the next piece of flesh. And that's what we were doing with our sin is we weren't thinking anything good. We weren't thinking about how to care for others or even how to care for ourselves. We were just looking for the next thing that would gratify our sinful desires. And it's really tempting in a passage like this to say, well, I'm at church, aren't I? <laughs> I'm a Christian, aren't I? Like, I've, I've figured out the secret to eternal life, so, so I, I, I got the right answer. But yet what it's saying here is that actually we were prisoners to Satan and there was nothing we can do about it. Because it says the spirit that is now at work in those who are disobedient, it means that we too, that was us. We were a part of the universal walking dead. We were a prisoner to Satan who did evil. And think about this. We know people in our lives, maybe it's friends, maybe it's family members, where you see them walking down a path that is just filled with darkness. Where they're walking down a path where you say, they are destroying themselves, they are destroying the people around them, whether in a physical way or in a mental way or an emotional way, and you try to stop them, you try to say something to them, and they can't listen because they are imprisoned to their sin. They're imprisoned to this wickedness in which it's leading them down this path of darkness. When was that you? Because what this passage says is at one point, this was us as well. Even if you claim Christ now, look back at your life and say, there was times where I can recognize that I was so entangled in sin, so engrossed with sin that as I was walking, I didn't realize the destructive nature that it was causing to the people around me, that it was causing to me. And, I, and, and in those times we can say, I, I surrendered to the will of Satan and did what was wicked and evil. I was not smart enough to outsmart Satan and we were marching towards our deaths with the utter inability to do anything about it. And finally, God's wrath is against us. And this is the just anger of God. And we know that like little kids, they, they run to their parents and say, that, my sibling hit me. They hit me. You should do something about it. And we do the same thing with God, right? When there's, when there's injustice in this world, when there's something wrong in this world, we go to God and we say, we want you to stop this. We want your justice to be known. We want your wrath against this wickedness. And yet we have to be honest that that happens with us as well. When we sin, when we do wickedness, God's justice, God's wrath is against it. Not because he delights in it, but because it's actually the opposite of what he delights in. He delights in his creation. He looks at creation and he says, what I have made is good. And when sin enters it, he says, now it is being used for wickedness and evil and corruption. And God says, I am angry at this injustice. I'm angry at this evilness. I'm angry at what's taking place and what was supposed to be good. So when we sin, God sees us destroying ourselves, destroying others, and turning our back to him in active rebellion. So his wrath is just against it because he says, you do not want to be in my kingdom. You'd rather serve the kingdom of this world. And now if the whole time we've been sitting here, you're thinking, this isn't me. This is the world. I, I, yes, I know exactly who you're talking about. Then we've missed it. Because we were the walking dead too. We were dead in our transgressions. We were not good enough. We were not smart enough. And God's wrath was against us. And what this first part of this passage should teach us is that if we are honest about our weakness, that is where we start. If we are honest about who we are, of what our sin does, that is our starting place. 
because it is so tempting for us in this world to run back and sin and sin again. And right now we need to come to God, as we've already done in this service, and admit we are sinners. We do bad things. We do wrong things. We do what is wicked. And we need to admit that before our God. And stop pretending that once we, become to, once we come to church or once we become a Christian, then sort of sin all stops. That those sins that used to haunt me are no longer there. <laughs> they just disappear. But say, no, there's a, there's a temptation in my heart to once again serve the kingdom of this world. And this is terrifying news. We shouldn't take it lightly. But the good news is that at least it gives us an honest picture of ourselves. Because the worst thing we can do is lie to ourselves. Because then we won't be in right relationship with God. But if we follow Paul's path and say, nope, I really am this sinner. I really am this weakness. um, Then we get to go and go out into the world and go to God over and over again. Because there's temptation to either look at the world and say, how dare you do that? Or there's a temptation to look at ourselves and go, how could I be this dumb? How could I do this? And instead, we get to look at this passage and go, I I know why the world is the way it is. And I know the way that I act is sometimes this as well. And we use this as a humble position, a starting position to get that spark back before the just wrath of God. Because something amazing is coming in this passage. And it's only with a bowed head and a humbled heart that we're actually going to be able to hear and receive it by faith. So secondly, what has God done? In an apology, you never want to hear, I'm I'm sorry I hit your car. Um, I'm really sorry about that. But, you know, you you parked it in the wrong spot. You know, I I was, you know, you, you had just texted me, so it's kind of your fault. Anytime in an apology where you hear the word but, what does that mean? It basically means just cancel out everything I said, and here's the real reason why this took place. The but cancels everything before it. So look at verse 4. But God, canceling everything that we just heard, being rich in mercy because of his great love which he poured out on us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Right here is, is the beautiful but of Scripture. <laughs> the but of, of ignore everything that just was said because this is the truth of what is taking place. Is right here, God recognizes us and tells us, you were very much dead in your trespasses. You were very much the walking dead. You very much were those sinners. But God's grace has made us alive again, brought us back to life. And this is the message of the gospel, that we were separated from God because of our sins. We are over here, and, and, and God in his perfection, and God cannot be with sin. And yet what brings us back together, even though we are in active rebellion against him, is he comes to us, he sends Christ to the world to die for our sins so that we may be in his kingdom. It's God's great love for us that made us alive again. And instead of being the walking dead, we are seated with Christ. And instead of being rebels in his kingdom, we are seated at the king's table. And that doesn't happen. If you are in active rebellion against a king, he doesn't all of a sudden say, well, don't worry about it. Come to my table where you can murder me. (laughs) But that's what Christ does. Christ says, you are in active rebellion against me, but repent of your sin and I will bring you into my kingdom. This is what God's grace is. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. Because 
Christ was good enough. He was the perfect life that we should have lived. And God's love was on him. So grace, what grace is, is God taking everything that we had done, our sinfulness, our wickedness, our, our stupidity, and he takes it and he says, that needs to be paid for. So Christ comes. Christ lives the perfect life we should have lived. And then Christ goes to the cross. And Christ takes all of our sinfulness and puts it on himself as he bears the cross. And God says, all of Christ's perfection, all of his glory, all of my love for him is now taken from Christ and placed on you. We get all the favor. We get the identity as sons and daughters of the king. We get this new ability to live according to God's character, freed from the slavery of Satan. We are lavished with God's abundant grace because of what Christ did on the cross, because God from the beginning of time loved you and said, you are mine. God chose through his grace to save enemies in his kingdom. And it will take an eternity for us to understand the depth of this love. But I want you to know today that the spark of God, that spark that you have, can return and is there when we go back to the gospel message. Because if you understand the depth of your sin, if you understand this is really who I am, this is really how wicked I am, and you say this hole cannot be filled, but then we go to the gospel and, and God says, no, <laughs> your sin is not greater than my love. Your sin is not greater than my grace. And that hole is filled by God's love then how can you not shout for joy, glory, hallelujah, to the king? Because we say, I am wicked. I am evil. I have done what is wrong. And yet God loves me. <coughs> and now some of you might still be stuck at the first point, though. You say, I'm a wretched sinner. There's no way that God could love me. I, I don't read my Bible enough. I don't know enough theology. I yell at my kids at times. I yell at my spouse. I lie. And, and what I want you to do is I want you to recognize that there is nothing you can do to earn God's salvation, but also that God is a true God. He is stronger and more powerful than sin and Satan, even those sins that you are scared to say out loud. Martin Luther, who is the uh, sort of the father of the Protestant Reformation, he, he wrote many letters to friends, especially about grace. And one of his friends was in ministry, and his friend actually gave bad advice to a, a young couple that ended up being actually sinful. So imagine that, a, a minister who is supposed to proclaim God, who is supposed to turn people away from sin, actually ended up turning people towards sin. And, and, and Martin Luther, holding nothing back from the truth and depth of the gospel, wrote this to his friend. My faithful request and admonition is that you join our company and associate with us who are real, great, hard-boiled sinners. You must by no means make Christ to seem trifling to us, as though he can only be our helper when we want to get rid of imaginary, nominal, or childish sins. No, no, that would not be good for us. Rather, we need a savior and redeemer from real, great, grievous, and damnable transgressions and iniquities, yea, from the greatest and most shocking sins. A savior and redeemer from real, great, transgressions, the very greatest and most shocking sins. Do you have those? Do you have those sins that you feel like if anyone found this out about me, they would say, gross. How dare you be in my presence? How can you call yourself a Christian? And yet, you know what God says about those? He says, I sent my son 
and they are forgiven. Let them haunt you no more, for they have been paid. Jesus is a real Savior and Redeemer, and his grace is not something that is small. It's not a joke. It's not make-believe. It is true, and it brings us from a place of death and hell to a place of life, to a place of royalty with him for all eternity. So now, when Satan tries to say to you, you are no good, what, you, what will you respond with? But God. You are no good. There's no way that you can serve in the church. There's no way you can call yourself a Christian. You better not make sure that anyone knows you're a Christian. You better not share Christ with anyone because they'll see your sins. And you say, but God. But God paid for them. But God saved me from them. And, and we need to understand our sin, but more importantly, understand God's grace. Because when you see your failure, it's actually an opportunity not to distance yourself from God, but to run from him, run to him. It is, it is similar to the teenager who gets in a car accident and goes, oh man, my dad's going to kill me. That's not a right attitude to have about God of, oh man, God must hate me. No, it's, it's the teenager who feels that desire of, I got to call my dad. I need help. And that's the same thing with us and our sin is we get to go, I got to call God. <laughs> I got to call out to him. I need help in this moment. Because freedom in Christ is something where we get to say, I have nothing to hide, nothing to lose, and nothing to prove because Christ did it all for me. All of our sin is covered. We have nothing to lose or prove because all of our hope is in Christ. And if we are under the protection of God, then we will take all our failures to an unfailing God and find his full and free forgiveness. Just as the first time we became Christians, we'll do it again, and we'll do it again, and we'll do it again, and we'll do it again. And that spark that you had when you first recognized how, depth, how deep of a sinner you are, but how much God loves you, you get to recognize again and again and again because you continue to return back to the Savior. You have a freedom to be wrong, to apologize, and love from a heart of deep joy because we rest on the forgiveness of our perfect Heavenly Father. And finally, where do we go with this? Where we are, what's wonderful is God doesn't just leave us in our place. He actually says, you are my workmanship. What do you think God expects of you right now that you are a redeemed sinner? Most of us would say the right answer. Start obeying God. <laughs> do what God says in his word, which is true. But what, what is the motivation? What is the heart that we have for this? And a lot of us run into trouble when we start analyzing our, our spiritual lives as basically good day, bad days. I prayed today, good day. I didn't read my Bible today. Bad day. I was really nice to people at work today. Good day. I wasn't happy at that cashier. Bad day. When we analyze our spiritual lives like that, then what we have to, when we start to do is we start believing that my standing with God is based on my works, based on my actions. But it isn't true. It's much like if you had, um, let's say you had a boyfriend, a girlfriend, and you went to one of those Build-A-Bear stores, and you spent a lot of time building the bear, you made it nice and cute and everything, and you bring it to uh, your significant other, and they say, why did you get this for me? And we go, mostly I wanted you to forgive me for bad things I've done. Or we say, or we say well, because I want some favors in the future. <laughs> we shouldn't be shocked if the face changes from joy to complete confusion or sadness. And that's what we sometimes do with 
God's works, right? When we do works for God, we, we kind of want to bring them to God and say, look, ignore the bad stuff that I've done. Look at the good thing. Or we want to bring them to God and say, God, you kind of owe me now, right? Like, my life should go pretty well. But that's not the right heart motivation of doing good works, of serving in the church, of serving one another, of sharing God's good news. It's a heart motivation of love. It's one that we've been saying all along is going back to the gospel of grace of saying that God has rescued me. There's the only response that I can have to that is of love. Not because of anything I've done or ever will do that God loves me, but he loved me in spite of my sin. And see, we need to remind ourselves of the gospel daily or else we're going to be tempted to serve God out of power, out of forgive me of my sins or owe me something. But when we understand that good works in and of themselves is no merit with God, then the only reason why we're going to do them is because of our love for him. We will be learning daily through the gospel that we serve God not for personal gain, but for his glory. Not for the love of self, but the love of the Savior. And if we have the right heart motivation, what comes out of the good works? It's actually God's glory. And we are transformed, and the people around us are transformed. Because, look, it says in in the beginning that Christ was created to do good works. And if we are in Christ and if we follow Christ, then what Christ did through this life is to glorify God. Christ did through this life is glorify God in thought, word, and deed. And we get to do the same thing. We get to glorify God in thought, word, and deed. Paul will eventually write in Ephesians 5 to be imitators of God and understand what the Lord's will is and to always give thanks to God the Father for everything in his name is of our Lord Jesus Christ in everything. Everything we do, everything we are, everything we have, we give thanks to God our Father, which brings him glory and is honoring to a rightful king. But also look, look what it says in, Christ, in, in verse 10. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are, good, we are God's workmanship, <laughs> Good works are actually showing us who God created us to be, who we really are. Do you realize that this is what's something that's so significant that hit me recently, is that we are a work of art of God's. And what do you do with works of art? Do you hide them in a closet? Do you make sure that no one can see them? Or do you put them on display? You put them on display. You put them out there because what God is saying is there is something beautiful in this person. Not their sin, not, not, not that stuff, but what I've done through this person. You are a beautiful work of art because what we get to say is, I, I've sinned, I've done wrong, and yet God has saved me. That is a beautiful story. That is a beautiful work of art being taken place. And you get to say, I, I'm sharing God's love with the world. I'm, I'm serving in my church. I'm doing these things. I'm doing these good works, not because it earns me anything, not because I'm paying back sin, but simply because I love God. And this is what I was created for. This is exactly what I was intended to do. This is the workmanship that God has put into me for me to do. You are called to be the work of art that God has created you to be continuing to see yourself as God already sees you, a beautiful piece of art that is worth more than all the artwork in all the galleries of the world. So how do we get that spark back? How do you, when you feel distant from God, get that spark back with him? We have to start the same way that we started in our Christian walk. We have to start 
in Ephesians 2 where Paul says us to start. You are a sinner. We've done wrong. We, we are not good enough. We're not smart enough. God's wrath is against us. But, but we get to say, in spite of all that sin, in spite of what I've done, not because of anything that I've, I've done on my own, but all because of what Christ has done, all because of what Jesus has done, he has rescued me from that sin. He has rescued me from the slavery of sin and brought me into his kingdom so that now when he looks at me, he says, you are my son and daughter whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And that's where the spark comes from. And that spark will lead us to go and do good works. Not for the sake of earning anything before God, but simply because we say, this is what God created me to do. I am supposed to do this. And I love God because of it. So let me encourage you, as, as Will, Will said, is that we want to keep sharing the gospel. Go out and share the gospel. Not necessarily in spite of your sin, <laughs> but because of what God has done for your sin. You get to look to others and say, no, no, no. <laughs> you might think you're bad. I'm bad. <laughs> and I want to show off the work of art that God has created in me. Because I didn't do anything to save myself. God did it all. And rest in that peace and find that spark once again. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we recognize that we are sinners, um, that we once served the things of this world, that we look to security and comfort of the world. And, and we do that even daily now, where we question your goodness and, and think that if only I have this thing, I will be happy. But let us throw off everything that tangles us and run to you, knowing that that's where we find that spark. That's where we find our joy. That's where we find our peace and happiness and hope is in the gospel. And the fact that you have saved us in spite of everything we've done, everything that we have done, everything we will have done, you didn't look at any of that. You just saved us because you loved us. And let us have the same heart when we serve you as one of love, one that we simply say, I love you because you have saved me, not because of anything that we are going to do and not anything that you are going to somehow give blessings to our lives, but simply because we trust and honor and follow you. In your name, amen.